Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Insomnia Project. Sit back, relax, and listen as we have a conversation about the mundane. Well, maybe not the mundane. I hate to say the mundane because it always seems not nice for our guests, but a calm conversation. One thing we try to deliver is a conversation that is chill and easy for you to listen to. So feel free to drift off. Thank you for joining us. We hope you will listen and sleep. I'm your host, Marco Timpano. Joining me in the studio, Keith Jones. Welcome to the Insomnia Project. Thank you very much. I'm pleased to be here. I am so thrilled to and have likewise, you likewise. here. I, I, I imagined this day, <laughs> and it's here. I've known you and your wife, Tess, for years. We've worked together. We've traveled together. We have. We've sat at bars and drank and philosophized In together. Incredible places. Yeah. And some dodgy places, too. And we have indeed. Um. When you travel, what is the thing that you look forward to in a destination you may have not seen before? The main thing about travel, I'm just genuinely excited about travel. You are. I'm genuinely excited about that moment when I close the front door, put the cases in the cab, and I know I'm heading off. And so that for me is always, that, that excitement has never left me over the past 20 years. Okay. And then when you get to your destination. Oh, sometimes it's just, oh, my God, here we are again. <laughs> <laughs> but no, but I, and I think it would be fair to say that um, there are some places now that I've been around the world. Uh, Singapore is a classic. Sure. Where I've been there so many times. Uh, it, it's just so familiar to me. Mm-hmm. I know exactly you know, how, how stuff works and how you get stuff done. I know exactly how to do that. That's places wonderful. like Singapore. Sure, sure. We spoke to Tess about Provoke, yeah. the Art of Transformative Facilitation, which is sure. a book that yeah. you wrote with her. Okay. Th- I want to ask you, the methodology came to you in a dream. Yes, it did. Tell me about that because Tess said you you must ask him. And I was like, oh, this is something. Oh, I'm my gosh. And I, I do want to mention that if you're listening to this episode and you want to know where to get Provoke, um, it's in our show notes, so just look on our show notes, and you will see where you can get this a copy of this book, okay. and we'll talk about alchemy worldwide as well. Okay. Uh, well, the story of the methodology is, uh, in many ways, is is quite goes back a long time. Okay. Because it, it was largely about the motivation to write the book was as much to do with getting to a point in my professional career where I thought to myself, do you know, I've got something to say 
about this stuff that I do. Sure. I've been I've been an, in psychology and as a psychologist for 40 years of my life. I've seen a lot, practiced a lot, sat with thousands and thousands of people. And when I began, I, I really resisted writing this book. You did? Oh, yeah. Why is that? I resisted it because I didn't want to codify the magic that happens during people's uh, illumination of their own experience. You know, one of the things that when I wrote that book, one of the things that I say in the acknowledgments is that it's dedicated to all of the people and their stories, the learners and their stories. They're the real crafts people of that book. Okay, It's written around their experiences. But when I began to, to look at it, one of the things that became clear to me was that it had almost a natural evolution it the, the book I, I think there's a cliche there's okay. often a cliche that's used which is people often say well you know this song wrote itself or this. sure and actually it's true oh really it really was i had this incredible writing guide which i ignored okay and the when writing the book the, there are two things that happen and then i'll get to answer your question Please. sure is when I had to learn how to write a book, you know, first thing you do, you go to Google, how do you write a book like sure. super quick? Okay. Well, that didn't work. <laughs> right? I like it. I like super quick. Yeah, super, super quick ways to write a book. Well, that didn't happen. Um, what I did find is that I could only write for a very short period of time and that the the actual text, the words that were infused in this book came from a particular internal place that I hadn't known or recognized and it sounds quite enigmatic and i don't mean it to be but it it came from a place where there was an intersection between my experience my emotion my thinking my feeling and sensation and i want to separate those three out feeling emotion and sensation they're all different they're not the same thing right the convergence of that particular state if you like was uh was profound highly moving and I could only be there for probably two or three hours maximum and then I was exhausted completely exhausted really yeah so when I when I started to write the book from I must sit down and write because it was a rucksack that I carried on my back for four years much of the stuff that I produced ended up just being discarded so I wrote thousands and thousands of words that I get to the end of it and go that's not it right it's not it and just discard it. That reminds me of, you know, that yeah. um, classic sort of uh, attribution that Michelangelo has when they asked him, how did you make the David? And his oh, response yeah. was, I just took away what wasn't yeah, the David. Absolutely. Would that be fair to say with I, this book? That was exactly right. I think that you've summed it up brilliantly mm-hmm. because one of the things that uh, people often don't get with the book is yes. that it, uh, although it, it came out of my experience, it was a discovery. Right. It has always been there. Right. And it has a really weird quality about being able to immerse myself in a process that had its own illumination as part of it. Sure. So when I when I came to really begin to think about how I was going to put this together in a way that actually began to make sense to people, that was when the methodology really bugged me. And I had a five-week tortuous writing block. Really? Produced nothing 
Um, and you know, and as you know, Marco, I, that was in between of delivery and doing lots of other sure, client of stuff. But there was a five-week period of producing nothing. That's a long time. It was a long time, and so the the, the pain, the actual right. physical pain, actually became quite intense. And I went to bed one Saturday evening, and the methodology that you see in the book, yes, I saw in a dream, as vivid, as bright. As real as I could imagine anything. And there it was. Wow. I woke up at 5 a.m. It was a Sunday morning. and is, I Is this five weeks plus a day? So this is five weeks plus a day. Okay. So take us back. So you wake up. Is, did you say Sunday morning? It's a Sunday okay. morning. Thanks. Sunday morning. It's 5 a.m. Uh, I wake up with a, a start. I wake up, Tessa. And I say, you've got to come with me into your office. We went into her office where she's got a large whiteboard. And I drew up the model that you see in there. And I just stepped back. And then I wrote solidly for five days. Wow. And so the rest of the description of the eight dimensions of transformation, how they synthesized the experience and provided the landscape that coalesced all of the richness of the experience of people's lives that came together in these eight dimensions. Wow. That was the first part. The, the most profound part of that, that, that if that wasn't profound sure. enough, is that it was actually a three-dimensional model, not a one-dimensional model. Are you talking about when you were writing on the board? You were drawing? I, I drew the thing out on the board right. and, I, and I looked at it and I said, but that, I saw that, but there were other parts to it. And so in order to reach the kind of depth of individual's human experience within the context of learning, that's where the three-dimensional component came into it, which is reflected in the book. Wow. And then uh, and it, literally, it literally poured out of me. I'm, I'm reminiscent of um, – I was listening to uh, a story that Paul Simon was speaking about, about the writing of uh, Bridge Over Troubled Water. Okay. And it was quite remarkable because how he described that and how people like Paul McCartney described the writing of yesterday, which he saw in a dream or heard in a dream, sure. is that in some almost bizarre way, you become a conduit for something that is already there just waiting to be born. People often talk about this as out-of-body experiences. Completely. And I completely get that. And you don't seem like the type of person to give credence, credence to out-of-body experiences. Uh, let's say um, when you're writing a book with regards to the art of facilitation, yeah. uh, you're going to have an out-of-body experience. If I had mentioned that to you, you know, the day before you started writing, you might have looked at me like I was, you know. <laughs> Probably, right. Marco. But I think, you know, once it, one of the things that uh, certainly all, all of my life's experiences have shown me with respect to this is that there is more to our experience. There is more to uh, the, the experience of living. And I think this is one of the big lessons that has come out of the writing of this over the past four years is that just how much I don't know. Right. All right. There is way, way more to this than you could possibly imagine. And even when I got to the end of the book, I thought, do you know, I could have, it's actually given birth to another seed. And interestingly, when we launched the book at the Royal Society, it, uh, um, I don't know if your listeners are familiar with the Royal Society in uh, London. We have so many listeners in the UK, okay. so many dedicated listeners, and okay. so many people. I've got a great 
listener in Bristol who will often email me and let me know what they think of my, of the episodes and ones they want to see. I love my British, my UK listeners. <laughs> Thank you. So yes. Okay. To answer your question, people will know. Okay. Well, the, one of the things about the Royal Society, which is quite unique, is it has a coat of arms, mm-hmm. uh, which is unique within heraldry, English heraldry, yes. English coats of arms. And it's unique in this way, is that the shield is divided into four, like many of them are. Sure. Only one quadrant of that shield has got anything in it. Really? The others have nothing. Okay. And the reason is, is because the Royal Society's shield, all of the... Empty quadrants represents all of the knowledge yet to be discovered. Ah. And I thought that was just such an astonishingly beautiful position to be in when we launched the book in the Royal Society itself. I love that. It's, it's wonderful. And, and I think, you know, to a large extent, I think that's really where, uh, where the profound nature of writing such a thing based on the convergence of my life's experiences with thousands of people um, has been both such a blessing and uh, uh, such a gift. Great. Actually, in my experience. Was your worry prior to writing the book, uh, it would would diminish the experience experience that you have in the room with those individuals? Because you had mentioned like, you know, I didn't Mm. want to write the book. There was something about writing this book that didn't. Well, you know, I'm going to go back to uh, a very early mentor of mine. Okay. Someone who is, for some people, highly controversial. Okay. So trigger warning for anyone listening. Trigger warning for anyone out there who may have uh, had the experience of this person. But I did in San Francisco many years ago, back in the late uh, early 70s. And that was a man called Werner Erhardt. Okay. Who was the founder of what became EST, the landmark forum, da 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 da. Okay. Um, but the, the main thing that was interesting about that, particularly during my early days as a, and as a psychologist, a very young mm-hmm. psychologist, is that the, the, the human experience that people have with respect to learning, when it goes through a process of interpretation and is then is shared with another person, is not the experience. The words are the interpretation of something that is quite magical. It can give shape to the expression of experience, but it's not the experience. It is the interpretation of the experience that is shared. And the reason I say Werner Erhardt, he wrote a very controversial piece many years ago, appeared in the San Francisco Globe, which was all I can ever do is lie. Okay. And the provocative nature of that title was exactly about that point, that any description of experience is never the experience. Okay. And so I think, you know, uh, even from my own development over many years, both in training as an analytical psychotherapist, group and individual therapist, as well as psychologist, none of the, the mechanics, the context of that describes the actual experience of what happened. And it's the same with the learners, same with the people I work with. Their experience is unique and cannot be codified. Right. And that's what I mean by that. Um, I don't know if that, if that answers your question at all. It I, does. Or it's it like we've gone off down another. No, I love it. I love it. I just wanted to get insight in that. And I, sure. I definitely, definitely have received insight. You said something earlier that really resonated with me, which sure. was um, in writing the book, you realize how much one doesn't know yes. in the area that they're writing that particular book. Absolutely. In. That's how I feel about travel. Having been someone who's traveled quite a bit, okay. I realize how much 
you know, someone might look at all the travel that I've done and said, oh, you've seen so much. Mm -hmm. And I look at it as, oh, only in seeing what I have do yeah. I realize how much I have yet to see. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. So does that mean more books will follow? Because you mentioned how this really sparked a seed in your yes, mind. Yes, it most certainly has. I think okay. in, in the written word, we, we, um, we've got another – I think there's about another four books Great. to be written. Um, we start the next book in January – in Marbella, so in southern Spain. No rest for the wicked, it sounds like. Absolutely not. I mean, as far as um, certainly the publishers have been concerned, the second book needs to be done in quick time. Okay. It needs to be the same quality. You know, there's nothing worse than, you know, people really release a great album and sure. then the second album is just like, what? <laughs> so that I, I, I actually experienced quite a significant amount of pressure in terms of what I have to create because that one uh, – uh, there is a, there is a uniqueness about that book which conveys something um, about me, and it was frightening. Marco okay. putting that book out was uh, was really frightening wow. because you know you have something that is so personal, and then you hand it to the universe, right? And it will take its own journey, right? Do what it, it will, it, and people will react or not react or think it's good or not good or agree with it or disagree with it. But that is a part of me that gets put out into the world. You mentioned books like albums and the second yeah, album. Yeah. Oftentimes the third album of a band <laughs> is where they go into, this is what we've always wanted to do. And it doesn't resonate with people like, what is this? Why are they, why is this heavy rock group now doing a jazz album yeah, on the third? Yeah. So what does that mean for your third book? Oh my goodness gracious <laughs> me. I, I, well, you know, I could imagine if I, if I think about you know, people that I adore in music, which sure. are the Beatles, I'm a Brit. So is the Beatles for nothing, me. At my age. Nothing wrong with that. I think they stand okay. the test of time. And, and, Ian, and if I think about the great shift in their music, actually, was Rubber Soul for you, for me, okay. rather than Pepper. Sure, because Rubber Soul was one of those really strange albums where you put it on and you thought, "This doesn't sound like the Beatles." However, you couldn't stop listening to it. Sure, and it had a really weird, captivating quality. So, whether or not it turns out to be a book of poetry, or, or something else as yet unknown, I have no That's idea. So great! I hate to call it a business book because I sure. feel like it's much more. Yeah, and this is probably the question I should have led with. But who is this book for? Um, the book is written for people who are lovers of learning. Okay. Okay. So I, I would say that if I were to think about a higher sure. order, it's people who love the, the exploration of what learning is mm -hmm. and what learning can offer. If I go down a level, then it's for professional learners. It's for people who commission learning. It's for HR directors, right. learning and development professionals. But actually, it, the, the higher order is people who are engaged in the business of living, right. the business of living in a way that um, uh, transcends the mundane. Okay. Yeah. Because I look at this book. The art of transformative facilitation. Sure. And I could I could apply that to a family. Yes. So that's if you're if right. you're, you know, 
the parents of yeah. a large family or a small family yeah. or it's just a family of two and you want to communicate yes. in a manner which will facilitate a transformation within your family, yep. within your lives, you could apply this to that. That's absolutely right. Uh, you know, one of the most bizarre things about that is that when we put the book out to a whole range of professional readers that were both academic professors from mm -hmm. business schools as well as senior practitioners, that was one of the first things that came back. And I remember one uh, one particular individual who is a very uh, senior staff member of a big technology company uh, said, said to me, said, do you realize, do you actually realize what you've written here? And I said, well, I know what I've written. No, he said, do you really realize what you've written? Because this process that you have described both contextually uh, in terms of the dimensions as well as a process and its three-dimensional nature makes this applicable to sales, to client value, to families. Some part, one person even came onto one of the programs and said, do you know that you've created the model of humanity? I said, how, how do you get there? And he said, let me describe to you how this thing has impacted me, because the dimensions of this describe the dimensions of my life. And I thought, wow, now that for me was both moving and beautiful. Sure. Because um, one of the one of the um, uh, key influences for me in writing this was from a position of generosity. It was actually in a position of sharing something and saying, "Hey, does this fit for you?" And but it was also in such a way that it was not dogmatic to say you have to do this this way. Great. The the methodology was written as a context to say, you know, Marco, you can imprint you on this and make this work in whatever way you are. And it will be that. Wow. There is no delineation that say you must go from point A to point B to point C. Absolutely not at all. So in that sense, the generosity is for the generosity of the ex uh, exploration of the human spirit. That's so cool. I'm going to sound pompous in a moment. And then in the flip side, I'm going to sound really ignorant. So okay. you speaking, what really resonated with me was there's a quote from Pablo Neruda. And this is where I sound pompous. But when I try to remember the quote, it's going to sound like okay. this guy doesn't know. But it's something like poetry is not for the artist but for the person who needs it. Absolutely. It sounds like, you know, you were faced with this fact that, oh, you wrote a book. You think you know what this book yeah. is, but really this is how this book has affected me. That's it. That, and, you know, um, Brian Sewell, one of the great art critics mm -hmm. in the UK, uh, when he was asked to comment on particular exhibitions at the Tate Modern, said, you know, the, the, the don't, there's only one thing about art. If you want to know what great art is, mm -hmm. Does it move the observer emotionally? Right. If it doesn't, it's not art for that person. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, and I thought, that's it. It's true. That's it. It's true. You know? So that internal landscape, the internal uh, experience of the individual is so profound. It's so wonderful. It's so magical that uh, finding a way – as I've um, uh, attempted to do within this book, to find a way to navigate that process uh, through the use of the, the, the methodology that is outlined there. It's a map by which the facilitator can navigate that internal labyrinth. Wonderful.
It's incredible. Yeah. They say never judge a book by its cover. Let's talk about the cover. A good idea. Um, we were talking earlier and you told me that there was multiple co- covers. 50, 50 covers. Tell me about what spoke to you about this cover. <laughs> tell me about the covers that you that didn't oh speak gosh. to you. Like, tell me about – let's judge your book by the by covers the cover. that you had to deal with. Okay. Okay. Um, and I think that the, first of all, the, the, the name Provoke was a name that I came on – quite quickly right the original cover was a split of that name so you had pr you know vok you know right it was a split on, sure. the, on the, much like many covers are today and then we had covers where there were people's eyes behind the word provoke <laughs> and it looked like a murder mystery story like, like the two o's would have an eye yeah, yeah, it was v just would ridiculous be... it's like what are you thinking <laughs> And we went through all of these different iterations. But one of the things that I wanted to do with this cover was to draw attention very quickly and in the fastest way possible. And so that particular cover in the way that it's put together was designed for that. That was one portion of it. Okay. The other part was to do with the what sits at the back of that, which is the Enzo, which is the Japanese – Japanese circle that's on there, which uh, sits as a backdrop to uh, pretty much why well, I would say probably the last 38 years of my life. I became a Buddhist 38 years ago. And so the practice, the practice or the understanding of Zen has been an organizing principle in the way I live, the way I am with people, the way I choose to relate to the world. And so without becoming esoteric or overly spiritual, it has its presence there without explanation. Mm-hmm. And that's what you see on the cover. And so that every book, tell, you know, every cover tells a story. And that yeah. that cover is strong. It's bold. It makes a statement. And interestingly, I didn't write the book to provoke the industry. Oh, surprising. Okay. Some people say, whoa, this is a real disruptor to the industry. Yeah. You have redefined facilitation. Some people have said that, you know, if you look at instructional design in, in uh, executive learning, what you've written here, it turns it on its head in a way that is utterly compelling. I said, really? Actually, all I've done is state my truth. Oh, wow. It just so happens that that is the consequence. But it was an unintended consequence of something, of a place that I'd come to in the exploration of my own journey. Provoke, therefore, is is actually not the term about the industry, although some people have taken it sure. that way. Uh, provoke is, 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 the, is the vibration between not knowing and knowing. There you go. Well, you, we've mentioned a few times in this conversation journeys yeah and this has been a wonderful journey thank with you likewise keith jones thank you so much for being a part of the insomnia project we did not get to alchemy i'm afraid absolutely fine for another day there you go but please look on our show notes and you'll find out more where you can find more about this book and alchemy worldwide it's been a pleasure thank you keith and likewise thank you marco You've been listening to The Insomnia Project. We hope you had the opportunity to listen and maybe sleep. As always, The Insomnia Project is produced by Trumcast Productions and was recorded today in Toronto, Canada.